Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Titus chapter 2. Today we will be looking at verse 2. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day to come together as your people, to hear your word proclaimed, to repent of our sins, Lord, to be clothed and cleansed in Christ, to uh, fellowship with one another, Lord, to hear your word explained, to be fed, to be renewed, to be strengthened, that we might, Lord, uh, be lights on a hill, that we might be salty. We pray, God, that you would bless our time now, that you would open your word to us and give us a great deal of insight and understanding uh, in equal parts, conviction and comfort. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, we come to uh, something that's very important for us to understand as Christians, especially uh, in this day and age when households are under attack. Households are being targeted. Cisgendered people are being targeted. Normal sex is being targeted. You know, I saw a meme recently, and it, it said heterosexuality, uh, it's, it's natural, it's worked for thousands of years, and you get to make babies. And I thought, yeah, I mean, how, how could you not get behind that message, right? <laughs> and, and something like that seems crazy in our world today, that you would have something so straightforward. And because uh, in the meme the people were white, it was then called racist as well. Um, <laughs> I saw that. Thank you, Facebook, right? A little edifying moment there on Tuesday morning. Well, households, what, what is a household? How does it function? There's a lot of questions about this. There's a lot that uh, Paul assumed when he was talking to husbands and fathers, when he's talking to ladies, when he's talking to children, when he refers to slaves and he tells them how they ought to be good slaves, that it's very difficult for us to unpack these things and understand how it applies to us today. Now, what we see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is that Paul divides his teaching according to gender and age. He doesn't just have one word for everyone. He has one word for the older men, one word for the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and then bond servants, slaves. And so why? Why, does he, why is he a sexist? Right? Why is he a classist? Why, is he, why does he believe in ageism? Right? Why, why is he saying that the old men ought to act one way and the old women ought to act a different way? Doesn't, doesn't he know what egalitarianism is? Right? What kind of humanitarian like, outlook does this man have? And, and right out of the gate, there is this offensive nature to what he's doing here to the modern Christian, to modern people. We don't like this. How dare you talk differently to, to the men than the women, you sexist pig. Now, a household code is what he's doing. He's, this is called a household code. In, in ethics at, at the time, in the first century, this is how people were addressed. You didn't just have ethics like, like you do now it's as if it's a separate category. You had ethics, and it applied directly to your station and position in the most fundamental community that exists, the family. What we have separated now, as I've said before, is I have a, a shelf of books on family, and I got a shelf of book, books on ethics, and the two things hardly ever touch. And what he is addressing here is, the, is ethics, but he's not doing it in a vacuum. He's doing it in the most fundamental relationships that you have, the, the building blocks of society, the household. What you see here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is a household code. 
an ethical collection addressed to various members of the household, emphasizing responsibilities relevant to specific roles within the family. Now, household codes are found throughout the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4, 1 Peter chapter 2. They are structured according to paired relationships. There's always these paired relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Now, the term household code originates in the 15th century, designating the ethical works of Stoic philosophers and Hellenistic Jews. And this is one of those moments where, I, I mean, we classify things as moderns. We're scientists. We can't help it. But if I go back to the first century and I, I turn to a Stoic philosopher, and I'm like, well, that's quite the household code you have. You're like, the what now? He would have no idea what I was talking about. It's like the Byzantine Empire. You go back in time and you you go to the, what, would, what we know as the Byzantine Empire, and you say, oh, you guys are Byzantines. They would have been like, what are you talking about? We're, we're Romans, right? So these modern categories that we have, if you go back in time, the people that we're talking about wouldn't recognize how we're categorizing them. So household codes, funny enough, the term comes from Martin Luther's time. They were like, yeah, we recognize this way of doing ethics was very different, and they, and they always addressed households instead of individuals, instead of separating ethics from their roles and responsibilities of a household. And, and why? What kind of culture do we assume there? What kind of culture do you have to have in first century Rome where the assumption is when you address ethics, you address families? Right? You don't, you don't address a banker as a banker. You don't address, right, there's not an ethic for a cop and then an ethic for a banker, there, when you address ethics to the people, you're addressing the ethics within the household. What does that all by itself tell us about the culture? Now, what, are, what is the place of a household code in the Christian life? There is a great deal of debate about this. Some ethicists see in the text direct application to relationships today, like myself, while others see no abiding relevance for the household codes, claiming their hierarchical pattern of human relationships is archaic and at odds with the egalitarianism of contemporary society and even the gospel itself. There's lots of people who say, well, you can't talk this way anymore because it, it just isn't modern. This is not, right? We've evolved beyond all of this hierarchical nonsense about wives submitting to their husbands and, and you have complementarianism, which is a big movement in Christian circles. And I, I don't want to say that right, a woman compliments a man right? She's made for him, and there's a lot to be said about that. But complementarianism, as most isms, is a wicked and evil thing. It's unbiblical, because what it wants to do is level the playing field and make everyone the same. It, it, it wants androgyny is what it wants. And then Paul comes along <laughs> and is like, hey, hello, you may be very modern there in the 21st century. You guys may have evolved a great deal. I'm really impressed, but I'm going to, I have a word from the Lord for you, right? I, this is the standard, and I think there are some interesting questions here, some that are actually very difficult to answer. I mean, if you think about what Paul says elsewhere, he says, well, there's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female, right? There's no man or woman. There's no Greek or Jew. We're all one in Christ. And so people think, okay, so we're all one in Christ. Okay, well, then how do you reconcile that with the fact that a wife ought to submit to her husband? You've got to deal with both things. And this, we're not just talking about ethics at this point. We're talking about the Trinitarian God himself. Because within the Trinitarian God, are they equal? Is there a quality amongst the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Well, of course there is. It would be absurd to say there isn't. So then why is one called the Father and the one the Son? 
Doesn't that automatically, just by having the, those names, right? He's a father, and he's the son. There's no son without the father. There's no father without the son. And, and autom- you have this hierarchical. How can you be, how can you have a quality where there's hierarchy? And then you go to marriage, and you're like, okay, so I, I will, men and women ha- ought to have a quality. You are both sons of God in the sense of your covenantal title of heirs of all things. Your legal relationship before the father is the same. Fine, but there's still a hierarchy. There's still a hierarchy. You can't avoid it. Now, the tension, <laughs> the tension between those two things, equality on the one hand and hierarchy on the other, well, that's why uh, the counseling exists, right? This is like 90% of Christian counseling. How do we deal with this tension? And I mean, right? Not lying is hard. Not getting drunk is hard. Not, like, not following my sexual desire. There's all kinds of things about the Christian life that's hard already. And then on top of it, I got to work out this mystery of where there's equality between my wife and I, and yet she must obey me. So then, right? Oh, because men, come on. We're like, oh, yeah, let's get down to some obeying. Hey, wifey, how come I don't have any folded clothes? Because uh, you're an idiot. That's why. <laughs> right? I mean, it's so funny how men take this and just run away with it. And or the, la- like the ladies take the equality part and run away with it. And, and both men and women want to run away with the part that is the hardest for them to understand. Because I actually think authority is hard for, is hard for a man to understand as it is for a woman. Like, what does it mean that you, get, you have your wife obey you? Uh, there's kind of an ick factor. Just, I mean, it shows my modernness just by the ick factor that I feel when I say that. Right? And everybody's, well, you've got to do it a certain way. You've got to be very careful. But when it comes down to it, what are we really talking about? We're talking about two things that don't seem to fit, equality and hierarchy. And, and this is why we react to the household codes. We, we don't like that part. We like it when Paul says, you know, we're all one now in Jesus. There's no difference between any of us. We're all the same. And that sounds to us easier. But how's that working out for us? Right? How's egalitarianism going? Right? How's, how's Western civilization? How's that feminist movement treating us all? Right? How's the sexual revolution going? And, and you see the chaos that, that and does, is that easier? Is what, do, what we have now in society easier than trying to reconcile this concept of equality and yet hierarchy? And so I think we need to take a hard look at this kind of thing. We need to ask more questions about this. We need to have more dialogue internally about what this actually means. Because in order, right, if we're going to put our houses in order and we're going to put the culture in order, we're going to put the church in order, if we're going to start putting these things in order, this is fundamental. How do you have equality and hierarchy at the same time in the same relationship? (laughs) How in the world does the Lord say to the Father, you know, your will is my food. Dad, whatever you want to do, up to and including the thing I do not want to do, right? Look at that submission. And yet he's the one who sits above all authority and power in the world, in the cosmos itself. There is a great deal of mystery here. Now, C.R. Wiley is a pastor. We're lucky enough now. He's moved from New England to the Pacific Northwest. He's down near Vancouver. He's a PCA minister. He, He writes a number of books. He's been on, he has a podcast. it's called, he's a very popular Christian uh, philosopher, and he wrote a book called The Household and the War of the Cosmos. Uh, he is um, a, a very, I mean, I don't want to insult him, he's a very sweet man. Uh, he's a very kind, sweet, unassuming man, but then he gets in there, and he gets right in the mix with this stuff, and he says some stuff where I'm like, man, that book, 
Yeah, you should sell that book on Canon Press because that's not going to sell on Amazon. <laughs> I'd be careful with that. But he had this to say about the household codes. He said, they, the household codes are terribly undemocratic. And in the language of our day, they're definitely sexist and classist. What we really need is a recovery of a way of life. The codes outlined a way uh, to order our households so that they can serve as microcosms of the largest order of them all. The challenge is enormous. Things are falling apart all around us. The atmosphere of Western culture is poisonous, and it seeps through the cracks and under the doors. It wasn't always so bad. I can even remember when politicians and public intellectuals referred to the family as the building block of society. Our households need to recover what made them strong in the past. And to do this, you must have a man in the house and a code to guide him so that he can order his house. Concerning that order, if he is a good steward, his work as a father and as a husband will serve as signs of things to come. Now just remember, a household ordered by the household code in Ephesians ref reflects the rule of Jesus Christ. That title, or that little tune, I'm sorry, that little tune that your household sings is in harmony with the music of the spheres. And that harmony restores many things that the enemy has perverted. The reason households have leverage is that they are natural. The household codes per perfect its intrinsic structure by ordering it to its true purpose in Christ. Now here's what, here, here let me unpack this just slightly. Uh, first off, household codes are good. <laughs> if you didn't get that, that's at least true. And, and he's talking about, like, how much does he sound like Paul talking to Titus? We need to put things in order, right? We need a good steward. We need this code. We need men to step up and, and take care of their responsibilities. And what he's talking about is how to fix not just the church or the house or, or individual homes within the church, but the culture itself, the culture itself. So when you men, right, take the household code, and you go into your house, and you say, okay, everyone sit down, and I'm going to use the word of God to instruct everyone in their station in this household how they ought to act. Okay, that man, that song that's being sung, when, when that is the song of the cosmos. That's what he means, the song of the spheres. When you get the hierarchy and the equality, when, that tension, when you start to figure this out, how this works, when you start to live like Christ, one who has authority and yet is, 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 submits to another, when you start to work this out, your home is in tune with the, the music of the spheres. And the music of the, of the spheres is, is what they call the trinity in medieval theology. Okay, there is this tinkling sound they used to talk about. If you could get beyond the atmosphere of the earth, you could hear this, this beautiful music. And the beautiful music was the triune God holding all of creation in its unity and diversity within itself. And so that's what he's talking about here. Now, who doesn't want their home to be in tune with the cosmos, right? What we want is to be in tune with the cosmos, but, but what do we do to get there? We are very much like the Christians on Crete. We have been uh, led astray by deceivers and liars. Our, we do have households that have been destroyed, right? There, how many households in this church have been affected by divorce? How many of you were raised by a single parent? Right, we, we are here, we are products of the culture around us. And, and, how, and, and you could sit there, and I, if, I, if I surveyed you, I said, okay, those of you who came from what they call broken homes, tell me, what would have been better? What would have been better? Use your sanctified wisdom, and you tell me, what would have been better than what you went through? 
And you know how many of you guys would actually write something similar to what he writes here as a household code? <laughs> you, you, you need authority, you need equality, you need kindness, you need grace, you need patience, you need wisdom, you need self. And you start listing off all the things that would have made that broken home not broken, and it involves what? A hierarchy, right? Some authority, but also equality and harmony and beauty. And, and this is, we know in our bones that this is what we need. We know it. You know it for your own household. You've been the, you were in your house all this week. You were there at every meal. You were there putting the kids to bed and waking them up. You were there to receive your husbands from home from work. You were there to do the laundry. You were there to finish up the homeschooling because, geez, it's July. We better get that done. You were there, and you tell me that this household code is not what you need. I dare you. Okay, now we're going to go into the world, and we're going to start putting it into order, and what does it need, right? And, and we say things as the church, and it's with its prophetic voice, that sound insane to it. How about we talk about father hunger? How about we talk about the fact that it's not the, like, it's not the fact that I can go down to the store and buy an AK-40, well, it's not the fact that I go down to the store and buy a revolver at this point, because that's all I can buy pretty much now, right? Is that the problem, that it's easy to get a revolver, or that there are kids growing up in homes without fathers, and when they're small and they, they won't sit still in the public school to get all the disinformation, you pump them full of drugs. That couldn't possibly be the problem, could it? I've gotten worked up too early. The... Right. I've been a Christian long enough now. If I, wanna, if I ask most of you guys, tell me what Ephesians is about. Tell me about the book of Romans. What is Genesis about? I, th I think most of us can do it. But do, you, do you, want, you want us as a community to level up one? You explain the household codes to me. You explain how we apply the fact that Paul says, here's how you be a good slave. Like You tell me how we take that into this culture, and then we're cooking with oil. Right? Then we're getting somewhere. You reconcile in your own home with your own spouse both equality and hierarchy. And once you've figured that out, I think you're ready to say something to the community. And, and that, this is something that we need far more than we realize that most of us didn't even know existed. I'll, I'll, right? Until C.R. Wiley wrote his book about the cosmos and the household, I'd never heard of the household codes. So I, I, I'm not saying it's as if you guys are a bunch of idiots, and I'm up here telling you what. No, I didn't know this. I was like, this would have been nice when my kids were a little younger to think about this. Because it just seems to me that Paul occasionally is like, you know, I'm going to be a busybody and start telling a group of people what to do. <laughs> right? And I don't know how many times I've, I've been told, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I've heard it tons and tons and tons and tons. But you know what I've never heard a sermon on? How a wife ought to submit to her husband. I, I don't actually think I've ever heard someone preach through those texts. And say, okay, listen, let's do, let's do a sermon series where I address both the old men and then the old ladies. Sorry, ladies, you're, you're, you're old. Okay, the old ladies. And then the young women and the young men and then the slaves. That's not going to sell, right? I can't sell that to Crossway. <laughs> I'm not taking that on the circuit. Ligonier is not going to bring me in to do a, 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 right, a talk on, on that at the national conference. There is something that we have lost, and it is a way of life. And, and if you want to know what ails the world... It's not a mystery. It's this. We have abandoned equality. We have a true biblical equality. We have abandoned true biblical hierarchy. And we have abandoned ethics associated with the household. They're attacking the household, and we're letting them. 
And if you don't think you're compromised with these things, you're joking yourself. Your, your, your eyes are not open. Your ears are not open. You're not processing current events properly. The hierarchical unity and diversity of the Trinity allows for true biblical authority and true biblical submission. Mutual submission, which is something I can't even get to because we can't get <laughs> women submitting to their, or wives specifically submitting to their husbands is hard enough. But then you start talking about something called mutual submission, which is now how, how, does now, how, how do you get a husband in the proper way to submit to his wife? <laughs> we can't even talk about that yet because we're still working on the first one, right? Even the concept of mutual submission is something that we're not really capable of having a, an honest and frank and profitable discussion about. True authority, I was just talking... Uh, we had a, a, have a preaching class. We've taken some guys through it. And I was just having a conversation yesterday about how many problems boil down to authority problems. People don't know how to exercise their biblical authority. They don't know how to submit to biblical authority. They don't know how to biblically revolt against authority that needs to be. We have a serious problem. And ladies and gentlemen, you're not bereft. You're not bereft. It's not, you're not left clueless. It's, it, you should not be wandering around in the dark with a flashlight trying to figure this out. It's right here. It's right before us. It's in our hands. And we either come to be uh, shaped by this, or we will continue to be shaped by the world. Now, Paul gives the necessary code to unlock order for those households upset by the false teachers. Paul is giving the antidote to the disease of deceivers and empty talkers. And because the household of the cosmos is the household of God, it is hierarchical. And so Paul begins his household code with the older men, just as he started his epistle by addressing the house stewards first. Right? He, he, he writes the letter, he introduces himself, and he starts at the top. Here's how you put the top of the pyramid in order. Here's what you're looking for for elders. Here's how they ought to conduct themselves. You will know them by their fruit. And he says, okay, now I'm going to go down one level on the pyramid, and I'm going to talk to the older men. And then he's going to work his way down. <laughs> and I just, I'm going to point, out, point it out as much as I can. Some of you ladies just heard me say, start at the top and work your way down, and you're cringing right now. And I feel you. I hear you. Okay? I, I understand the tension. I understand how that sounds. Work, work your way down. You're not allowed to talk that way. The Bible talks this way, and so we ought to talk this way. And so what we're going to do is start at the top with the older men and work our way down. We are going to do the thing that Paul wants us to do, and we are going to address classes of people based on their sex and tell them exactly what they ought to do in the station that they find themselves. And, and what we're going to begin with is the old men. Now, I won't make you raise your hand. Your hair gives you away. <laughs> your, your creaking joints gives you away. <laughs> the fact that you were nodding off slightly a few minutes ago gives you away. I see you. <laughs> now, here's, what I, here, here's always the thing when I do this. This is partially why people don't do this. Because I'm, gonna, I'm saying I'm going to talk to the old men, and everybody else is tempted to stop listening. <laughs> but ladies, I, I, this is what I had to say before. The men we're going to see are actually supposed to be something you emulate. You're supposed to imitate them. So when I'm talking to them about doing these things, it's because they're setting, setting the pace for the race of the faith. They're the ones setting the standard. And so if you want to know how you ought to act, look to the men. Look to the older men in the community. So as I'm addressing them, please don't just start you know, doodling or whatever, knitting, whatever you ladies do. 
Yeah, that was, okay, that was unnecessary, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, pay attention is the point. Keep eyes up here, keep listening. Now, chap, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. One more time. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, the specific age a man must reach to be considered an older man is not indicated. Likely, Paul means those men who have raised a family and have seen their children begin families of their own. Paul uses the word in reference to himself in Philemon verse 9 when he was about 60 years old. So that gives us some indication. He uses this term about himself. He was about 60. He's in prison. And he knows that death is coming because back then you didn't live nearly as long as you do now. Okay? So he, he knows he's towards the end of his race. And he refers to himself, so that gives us some indication of what we're talking about. We're not talking about men who are 35 years old. Now, if you're a 35-year-old man and you want to become a, a respectable older man, you fellas also keep listening. Now, Paul enumerates some well-known qualities that typify respectability and so should characterize older Christian men as examples to everyone else. Paul addresses a man in his sage stage, sage stage. Now, that's what I'm calling this, because we've all, how many of us have ever heard of the cage stage, right? We've all heard of that. Some young guy discovers the doctrines of grace, and then in the most ungracious way goes around telling everyone about it. You know, if you cannot afford a college education, find a guy in his stage phase, pick a fight with him, and you get lectured for free. Right? This, is, this is what these men are like. They will just tell you what you ought to know and how you ought to do it. Uh, we've all seen it, but I, I remember there was a, a book study. A bunch of men are in my garage smoking cigars, talking about the deep things of life. And, and the kid with an eight-week-old baby starts telling the dad with ten kids what he ought to do about his daughter who isn't eating her dinner. And, and I remember the rest of us were like, we're getting a lesson right now, but it's not the one that he thinks. <laughs> right? That's a cage stage guy. What I want to talk about is the sage stage, a sage stage, a mature or venerable person of sound judgment, a mature or venerable person of sound judgment. And, and I know some of you older men now are like, well, he's not clearly talking about us, but I am, right? And what I want to help you with is get over the false humility and, and embrace who and what you are in this community, who and what you are in this community. You are mature you are venerable, and you are of sound judgment. If not, I will line up any of the guys over the age of 60 and, and against the guys in their 20s, and I, I will prove it within 30 seconds, right, that you are of sound judgment. No more false humility. Older men are to be sober-minded, not given to extremes in behavior. They must be temperate and restrained, characterized by discipline and seriousness and sound moral judgment. They are to be dignified, worthy of esteem or respect. They must be honorable, of good character, and venerable. That's what we're talking about here. Now, what does all of that mean? Because I could get out a dictionary and read the definitions of all those words, but I don't think that would be nearly as helpful as going through some verses in the Bible, and it tells us what these things mean. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to begin in Romans 12.3. The book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 3, it says, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there you go. You don't think more of yourself than you ought to. Now, some of you gentlemen actually don't think nearly as high of yourself as you ought to. So, but I, I do want to address the first thing. Humility is the first thing. You ought to be a humble person. You ought to be a humble person. And, and I think in our day and age, given the culture, it, we, we actually have a problem here where arrogance and pride isn't usually what you find directly. What you find is, is, is overcorrection. You know the things that you've done that were failures. You know the mistakes that you've made. And so therefore, you, you, you don't take this seriously that you're a venerable man who is sound in judgment. But I want to go on to this last part, um, each according to the me measure of faith that God has assigned. I think you older gentlemen would, would recognize the fact that not everyone has the same amount of faith. I, I remember this years ago. Dean shocked me one time when we were in the leadership class, and he was talking about the fact that there are some things he doesn't pray for because he doesn't have enough faith. He's like, I pray for the things that I have the faith to pray for. And I remember being like a young guy, like, what in the world are you talking about? And what he's recognizing is there's, right, people went around and, and Jesus says, oh, they don't have enough faith here for me to do the work that I want to do. And, and they're, not, right, they're not going to hell. They're, he's recognizing the weakness of their faith and, and therefore the limited amount that he's able to accomplish in their midst. And so what, what, what this is, is you have a sense, you're humble enough to know the limits of your faith. You understand that you were not given as much faith as other men. You know, you can sit down and read a biography, say of uh, Herman Bavink, and you say, yeah, I don't have as much faith as he did. You, and and you're, you recognize this. And, and we start talking this way, and people do not like it. It's confusing to us because we're not used to it. Doesn't every person who has faith in Christ have the same amount of faith? And, and a man in the, over 60, if he were to come up here, he'd be like, no, that is not true. Everyone does not have the same amount of faith. And you, you've got to be able to recognize it. You've got to be able to be humble enough to see it for what it is and the glory of it. Paul talks about how we're not all given the same amount of grace. We're not all given about the same amount of faith. There, there is a hierarchy even in the blessings that God gives to us. Just like, right? We, it's no problem with money. There are some men who are wealthier at, in, at the age of 65 than others. And we think, yeah, okay, there, there, there are circumstances in his life that produce that. But then I say, well, there's some men who don't have as much faith as other men at the age of 65. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're messing with doctrines now. So one is easy to accept. The other is not. But I think we need to consider what this means. So uh, a sage is a man who's humble and is a man who, who, who um, he doesn't think too highly of himself, but he thinks what he ought to think about himself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. He's reconciled that. He understands that in his own life. Now, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, 7. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says this. Now, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So this is a general, right? Both of these things that I've said are general commands to Christians. What I'm saying is that a sage has figured this out. A sage knows how much faith he actually has. A sage knows because he's sober-minded for the sake of his prayers. So you, you, you ought to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what does that mean? 
What is that? You should have sound moral judgment for the sake. Remember a while back, I preached a sermon about the fact that most of us don't know what we ought to pray for. Well, what I, what I find with, with venerable men, sages, is they do know what we ought to pray for. They do know what we ought to pray for. And, and, and I love hearing the prayers of older men who have more experience because I'm a young man and I don't know what to pray for nearly as much as they do. Now, we could get into an like, what did I say there? I said all men do not know ultimately what to pray for. But it's a sliding scale, in my opinion. There are older men who've, who've they, 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 they see the community, they see people's lives, they see what's going on in the culture, and they, they, they've seen a thing or two. And so they know better how to pray, not only for members of their own family, they know how to pray for members in the community, they know how to pray for the culture differently than a man who's 20. Because I remember the prayers of when I was 20, Lord God, please give me a raise, right? Give me a raise. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like my wife's like third pregnancy. I was like, maybe I should start praying for her while she's pregnant. And, and you guys can laugh. It's funny because I was a new baby Christian. And I was like, yeah, you know, God knows that she's pregnant. And I know she prays. But I was like, oh, maybe I should pray for that. And, and can you imagine a 65, like 65-year-old man addressing me at that moment? You moron. <laughs> Get on your, like, are you kidding? Every single day, start with a prayer about that. And then even after she has the baby, keep on praying for her and that baby. Okay, don't just stop when the baby was born. It's like, oh, yeah, actually, that's a good idea, too. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, young guys, with all their strength and prowess and wisdom and knowledge and understanding, we, we just go at a problem hammer and tongs. And, and I, I don't know how many times I've been checked by a, a venerable older sage who's like, you know, let's pray before we, let, can we pray before we have this conversation? Can we pray before we do this thing? Can we pray? You're going away. Can I pray for you as you go? I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, that might be good. I mean, I was just going to go do the thing in all my glory and power. But, yeah, let's pray. Sure, why not? And so this is what you see, a man who is humble, a man who understands exactly how much faith he has, and a man who is sober-minded and wise when it comes to the prayer closet. Now, if you turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians 4. I'm going to read a somewhat larger part here, verses 5 through 9. So Philippians 4, verses 5 through 9. Let your reasonableness, your equanimity, that's what that word means, let your equanimity be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and, and the God of peace be with you. Now, what we see here is Paul giving some instruction. He is in the sage stage, and he's talking to, to Christians, and he's encouraging them in the things that they ought to be doing. So he's like, listen, let your reasonableness, let your equanimity, let your calmness, let, right, make, make it in, in the tossing seas of life, make it look like your ship has some ballast. Don't freak out. And doesn't that sound like something a sage would say? And, and again, I, I mean, we could all testify, younger men, 
right? Something happens, and you call an older guy to get some advice, and, and, and you just, you're like, the house is burning down around my ears. And, and the guy says, well, I don't see any smoke yet, so you're fine. Calm down, right? Relax. What you see here is that Christ is at hand, is what he's telling them, because, because the sage knows. You know what? You know, you know who, who is here right now, no matter what's going on, is Jesus. Do you know where Jesus He's with us, and he's sitting on, on, at the right hand of the Father. He can be in both places at once. He's got this. He created you. He created this world. He created this problem. He's taking you through this. He is at hand. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. He's got this. Right? And, and do you think Paul knew something about uh, the, the, the peace that surpasses all understanding, guarding your hearts? And that, that word guard is billet. Right? The peace of God literally fills your heart the way soldiers fill like a barracks. Your heart becomes a barracks of peace. And, and we have seen these sages. We know these men. They, it's like, how are you so calm right now? And how, are you ha- how do you have peace right now in the, in the middle of these circumstances? Haven't you been watching CNN? <laughs> right? And generally, the sage will be like, no, I stopped watching that years ago. Oh, maybe that's why he has so much peace, because he reads his Bible more. Anyway. A sage is a humble man of prayer who sets his mind on what is true and honorable, just and pure, lovely and commendable, excellent and worthy of praise. And by meditating on what is true and beautiful and good, one's affections and attitudes are shaped. Meditation is the application of the mind and the imagination to the truths of the faith with a view of stirring an intense, effective response. So the sage understands, the more I meditate on what's true, beautiful, and good, the more I meditate on these things that Paul is talking about here, the more I, it will affect what I love and what I hate. Because, because the wrath of an older man, right, at a pedophile is greater than that of a younger man. Because he, he knows how ugly it really is. Uh, and, and I've told this story before, but it was years ago. I remember this, this older fellow that I know talking about this sin that he had committed. And I thought it was, pr- I was like, you're being awful hard on yourself. Like, I don't even necessarily think you need to repent of that. And then la- later on, as I got older, I remember committing the same sin and thinking, and thinking man, I, I wonder if I'm still a Christian. And I, and I remembered back, like, he, that guy knew how bad that really was because he knows something about sin that I don't because he's been resisting it longer. And so those men who've been resisting sin longer know how strong it really is. And young men who haven't been resisting it very long underestimate its strength all the time. You know, C.S. Lewis says the only one who actually knows the strength of sin is Jesus because he resisted it under the point of death. None of us really know how strong sin is because we give into it too soon. But a venerable man, a sage, knows more than a young man about that because he's endured it longer. He's fought it longer. Just as he has meditated on what, right, he comes to find, you know, what's really worth it? And the little babies are the best thing. And when I see older men, and they, they, they just love to be around little babies, because I'm kind of in this middle phase. I had them. They were great. And I'm kind of getting to this point where I, I, I'm more fond of them than I used to be now, generally, everybody else's babies, because I know I'm not going to have any more, I think. <laughs> right? And, and it's like I, I care more about it now than I used to. Like, just babies in general are just a more beautiful thing. I used to love baptisms and weddings, and I'm adding babies now to the list because I'm getting old. <laughs> right? And I'm, I've meditated on what's true, beautiful, and good long enough to understand that that's real value. That's real value. 
right? I'm standing there, and, and there's a bunch of people around, and it's kind of distracting when the ladies have the babies there now. And I, I, I mean, in all through my 30s, I was like, people were like, where are your kids right now? I'm like, I don't know, right? I don't know where the little kids are. I would get away from the crying baby. <laughs> but as we get older, we love the things that God loves, and we hate the things that God hates to much greater degrees because our affections have been shaped on med- by meditating on the things that we ought to be meditating on. A sage sets his mind on things above that he might, by contemplating what is serious and permanent, become himself serious and permanent. He's not frivolous. He's not silly. And what, what I, I want to remind everyone here is that C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. Serious does not mean dull. It does not mean dour. Older men are to be self-controlled over their passions and desires. But, but as it said here, they're supposed to be full of thanksgiving. They're supposed to be joyous people. They understand that joy is the serious business of heaven. And so when I'm saying serious and I'm saying permanent, I'm saying heavy, I'm saying venerable, what I'm not saying is dull. What I'm not saying is that this guy never smiles or laughs and, or he can't take a joke. He, he can control his passions. He can control his desires. He, he knows what's actually funny. He knows what's not actually funny. He doesn't fall for that trap that younger men fall for where you think, oh, I'm going to watch this I'm going to watch this comedy because it's so funny, and really it's full of the kinds of things you ought not be meditating on. Because even that, like I, I, he's talking, I go to work, and uh, there's an older Christian guy working there, and he's like, oh, what did you do this weekend? I'm like, I watched this movie, and he's like, oh, really? And I remember going, I mean, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but he, he's under control of himself. He understands the weight of things. He knows what's really valuable and what is not, and that makes him very serious. It's not that he is... Sour. A sage is steady and dependable and predictable. Here we see something, um, when it says that he ought to be self-controlled, we see something that is uh, important enough to, to just step aside for a second and look at it specifically. I'm, I'm moving on now in, in chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and now self-controlled. Well, self-control is mentioned quite often in chapter 2. It's mentioned in verses 2, 4, 5, 6, and 12. It is also the one characteristic common to each group within the household code. It's the only one. This points to its importance ethically in God's household, but it also points to the proper role of men in the community as standard setters and keepers, right? So um, older ladies are supposed to teach younger ladies to be husband lovers and love little children. Now, that's a specific thing that they're supposed to do. The men aren't told to do that. But you know what both older women and older men are told to do is to be self-controlled. And, and so the, the one thing that is consistent across the entire, each group individually, is this idea of self-control. And what we see is that older men in this are supposed to be setting the standard. What does self-control look like? Well, look to the sages in the community, and you will see. And, and everyone is looking to them as an example. The older women are looking to them as an example. The younger women are looking to them as an example. The younger men and the slaves, even. (laughs) Everyone is looking to the older men for this standard. And I think it's a little window into how this whole thing works. We're all looking at them and how they're living the Christian life, how they're enduring, right? How they're suffering, how they're praying, how they're, what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy. We're we're looking to them. But self-control is a very important one. It's the universal ethical command in the house of God. Jesus, of course, commanded his followers to renounce self and to follow him. So our ability to control self is the fountainhead of all of our ethical choices. That's why self-control is so important. 
because we're not, right, controlling yourself, if you're in control of yourself, it's easy to put self to death. If self is out of control, right, there's no, con there's no controlling him, there's no putting to death those desires and those things inside of you that ought not to be. And, and so you can see why it's so fundamental and why everyone is told to have this particular virtue. Our ability to control self is the fountainhead of all of our ethical Choices, because it's, right, we either, we are called to love God and to love neighbor, and what gets in our way almost every single time is self. Our own comfort, our own happiness, our own desires, and, and that's why it's so important to have self under control, because what you're called to do is, is choke the life out of him, right? You're, you're told to put him to death so that you may follow Christ, and, and if you can't do that, if you can't get self out of the way, you're not going to follow him very far, and that's why self-control amongst the sages is so important. We're all supposed to be learning together what it means because it's fundamental to our ethic. Now, the standard is set by the men of the community. Older men must live observably respectable and dignified lives, a dignified life free from overindulgence, dissipation, and foolish behavior has clear cultural implications. Now, Christianity does have a mystical and mysterious elements to it, no, no doubt, right? What, what is the inner life of the Trinity like? What, how does covenants work? How does one man and one woman become one flesh? There's a lot of mystery and mystical stuff going on in our faith, but man, the manifestation of the Christian life communicates in a language understood by all. Our deeds are an extension of our creeds, right? So an older man who's supposed to be in his sage phase, right, sage stage, and he has absolutely no self-control, and yet he's constantly telling everybody what, what, they, what they ought to believe about the Bible. How long is anyone going to listen to that man? Not long. Now, the man who is actually self-controlled, the man who is venerable, that man has an effect on everyone else around him. Now, I'm going to come back to that for a minute because he does do something else here that's also interesting within the text. Paul, the most basic components for Paul in his other epistles and his theology generally, we can see that the most basic components of Christianity are faith, the vertical relationship with the word of God, and the horizontal relationship of love expressed in good works. So faith and love are very crucial to Paul, right? Your faith, your, your relationship to God, and your love, your, your, your relationship to others are very important. But Paul alters the early Christian triad of faith, hope, and love, which is normally what he says. He says faith, hope, and love. He usually puts those three together. But in this particular case, he, he substitutes one word for endurance. Now, why? Why would he take, right? He always says, love, faith, and hope. But now he says, love, faith, and endurance. Why do you think he would tell the older men that the, you ought to have love, faith, and endurance? He's emphasizing that older men need perseverance. The latter years of life, especially for men, especially for men, I think, can be filled with regrets, a sense of uselessness or worthlessness, feelings of despair, self-absorption, or even a tendency to relax moral standards. And this, is, this happens, right? If you've been running, this is, this is true of, of just the natural world, I've heard anyway about this. If you're running a marathon, you don't run the last mile generally as fast as you ran the first one, right? And, and when I'm running, I, I, I run and I get slower and I get slower and I get slower and then I stop <laughs> because I'm like, this is as far as I'm going to go. And the Christian life can be like this. Some men are like, listen, you know, I, I've been doing the right thing. I've been faithful for 
decade upon decade upon decade, and I just kind of, I'm over it now. I'm over all that work. And, and, and that kind of statement demonstrates what the person really believed in the first place, right? And, and, and you do get tired towards the end of the race. And, and what you can't be is then lazy. So, so imagine you're running a race, and, and you start messing, like your form isn't good. And next thing you know, your, your knee hurts because you're running goofy, right? Because you're just tired of the whole process. No, what, what, what older men need is endurance. Because this is the other thing. Like, you, you've, I don't know how many times men, especially in their 40s, they, kinda, they start to think, you know, I'm just not accomplishing what I thought I would, I would accomplish. I, I don't have as much authority as I thought I would. I don't have as much respect. I'm not getting things done like I thought I would. And, and there's this middle phase that men really do go through that's very difficult for them. And, I, and it comes back toward, right? And then usually men figure it out, and they're like, okay, no, I got decades left of, 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 of a race. And so they go hauling butt down the road. And you're like, awesome, good, that's good. You figure that out. But then it comes back. And they look back at their, their marriage. They look back at their work. They look back at their families. They look back at their churches. They look back at the things they built. And, and what they see generally, right, is what didn't work out, what failed, what was broken, what they should have done. Because life is short. You don't get a lot of time here. And you accomplish very little. And older men are more aware of that than anyone. And, and what, what they need is endurance. Paul says, listen, keep running. Keep running. I know you're tired. I know you're not running as quickly as you did. I know your hip hurts. <laughs> but just keep going. What he wants for the older men is what he wanted for himself. If you turn to 2 Timothy, which is a page over, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what he wants. He wants older men to keep going because it, it's, it, right? it's not going the way you wanted. There are disappointments. There are failures. There are setbacks. You're, you're not who you thought you were, and it's worse than you realize. And, but Paul just says, keep going. Come with me. Come with me to the end. And I, and I think it's very important. And, and, and this is, you know, yeah. One, one thing that we've lost as a church the church generally, this church specifically, is, is the gift of encouragement. We don't have nearly as many Barnabases as, <laughs> as we should have. Because when's the last time, younger men, that you walked up to one of these older guys and you're like, listen, man, I can't believe what you've seen and been through running this race as long as you have, but you're doing a great job and keep going. Right? When you're in the trenches and you got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and your wife's pregnant again, Right? and you're trying to make it at work, you, you tend to think, where are the older people coming to tell me, hey, you guys are doing a good job? Because I'll be honest, actually, I hear that more than I hear the younger men saying to the older men, hey, you guys are doing a great job, and I really appreciate it. Just keep at it. Keep going. And, and what we're getting into now is the cross-generational problem that the American church has. Our church has it. And, and I think we need to start thinking about this. Paul is pointing out, like, he, he dare, he, he's, I'm sorry, he's straying from his normal pattern. Why? Because it's important for the older men to hear, listen, keep running. Keep running. Now, the other thing I think that has happened, we don't understand always how the culture affects us, is this idea of retirement. Some Christian men think, you know what, <laughs> I worked for 40 years at, at GE, I put in all that time, and now what I'm going to do is take it easy. 
And I think there is a retirement approach to the Christian life. You're like, yeah, you know, my kids are raised, they're out of the house, they're on their own. I'm not working like I used to. I don't work like I used to. And so I'm going to kind of just check out now and grow a little apathetic. Because now it's, it's up to the younger guys to do it. But that's not how ethics works. That's not how the gospel works. That's not how the Christian life is supposed to work. And I think that the older fellows need more encouragement about keeping it going. Keep going. Now, I'm going to move on now to this, this triad, this next triad that he has here, and he, or finishing with this triad. Because he says they ought to be sound, sound, in faith, love, and steadfastness. And sound keeps appearing in, the, uh, in this letter. Chapter 1, it, it was in verse 9 and 13. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And sound means healthy. It means free from infirmity or disease. Elsewhere, the Greek word is translated as well in Luke 5.31, safe and sound in Luke 15.27, and in good health, 3 John 2. So an older man's faith, his love, and his steadfastness ought to be free of disease. If his creed is healthy, he will be free of inordinate loves because his heart is fixed on Christ. Thus, he will be steadfast. He will endure and persevere in his obedience and devotion to Christ, despite life's disappointments and obstacles, setting the standard for younger men. Okay, And, and this is what he's talking about. You have to be sound. You have to have health in your love. You have to you have, a, have, to have healthy creeds, healthy love, healthy faith, healthy steadfastness. You have to be healthy in these things. Now, I know, your, I know your liver doesn't work like it used to. I know your back doesn't work like it used to. I know your neck doesn't work like it used to. Though all of, you, all of you is getting unhealthier and unhealthier every day that you're alive. But what must remain healthy even as your body is decaying is your love and your faith and your steadfastness. And, and, and this, I want to now address this because if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, there's a lot of things that can prevent men from being steadfast to the end. But what I want to talk about is a sage is able to look at what has, he has endured, and he's able to process it properly. That, that's what makes him a sage. He's at this point of life, life where he can't be overburdened and let his gray hairs go down to shehole and shame and disgrace and brokenness because of what he's endured. He's got to, be able to take a healthy look at it. And, and, and see the hand of God in it, see what he learned in, from it, see, see what was good and what was right and what was true. So if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, it says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, you're following me in these things. Notice he doesn't say, you, you, he doesn't say you're following me that time I murdered Stephen. Right now, now, Paul, who we all know, stood there while they murdered Stephen. How does that guy get off telling anybody anything? You murderer. But, but that's, right, we all know that about him. He's not at the end of his life thinking, I have nothing to say to anyone because I failed that time because I persecuted the church, because I was against Christ. No, he says, listen, listen, where I followed Christ, follow me. That's what he's talking about. He says, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, those things that were good, those things that were permanent, those things that were beautiful, those things that were right, those things that honored Christ, do those things. And the older men who are sages are able to look like, listen, Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you, what you ought to believe. Here's how you ought to pray. Here's how you ought to love your wife. Here, here are the things that I did by the grace of God that were good, and I want to encourage you younger people in those things. 
Sages ought to be like Paul. And listen, where I followed Christ, follow me. Well, where did you follow Christ? Well, nowhere. No, come on. <laughs> come on. Why don't we sit down with your wife and your children and your grandchildren and we'll interview them and, and, and we'll find out from them. Have a sober-minded look at your own life and you will see that, that there were times where the grace of God actually had an effect on you. Because what we don't want to hear, the younger people, is that the gospel doesn't actually have an effect on you. And, and this is the rub. This is the thing. People are like, well, you know, I didn't raise my kids the way I should have. No, you didn't. No, you may not have. No, you may, you may have lied. You may have stealed. You may, have done, you may not have been the dad who was there all the time. Fine. All of that's fine. But tell me, the gospel actually, you are better now than you were before, correct? It really does transform people, correct? Now, if you're under the age of 60, raise your hand if you need to hear that the gospel actually changes lives. Right? We need to hear it. And it doesn't help us when all the older people are fixated on are the failures. Yeah, you're sinners. Good job. Well, I got a Bible. I figured that out. You know what's harder to believe? You know what's harder to believe? Is that sanctification actually occurs. Because, again, here's a, here's, here's a dad who hasn't gone on, his date, uh, on a date with his wife in months. He, he can't get the kids' names right because he's so tired. He's got to he's travel for work. He's, he's, he's in the middle of all of this stuff, and he's overwhelmed by it all. And what he needs is somebody to tell him, like, listen, th this too shall pass. This is what's grinding out of you. This is what's forming a sage. I remember these days, and I remember not knowing what I was doing. I remember being overwhelmed. I remember doubting the gospel. And I'm telling you, this will not endure. Christ will endure. This will not stay the same. You will not be the same as you are now. Later in life, you will be able to look back at this and realize that this is what was making you. And I think younger men need to hear that. I think younger men need to hear that. The sage is a man with gravitas. Gravitas. Now, this, this is an old Latin word, but I think it's something that needs to be restored in our, in our midst. Michael Foster and Vaughn Tennant, who wrote uh, It's Good to Be a Man, explained gravitas this way. Do you want to be taken seriously as a man? Most men do. But most men equally find it difficult to be the sort of man that others take seriously. Men need gravitas like women need beauty. The term is Latin, a Roman virtue referring to something like seriousness. If we were to translate it, however, better words might be dignity or weight. A good example of gravitas in scripture is in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Here, Paul tells Titus to instruct the older men to be grave. There should be a becoming gravity, as John Calvin comments, in the lives of aged men which compels the young to modesty. The spiritual weight of these men should be such that their gravitational pull draws younger men into a nearer orbit with God. Because the visible reveals the invisible, gravity itself is a useful analogy. Gravity pulls things into their proper place. It brings and maintains order. If it were to cease, we would all start floating helplessly. Our solar system would be reduced to chaotic chunks of rock spinning wildly into the void. So it is with gravitas. It establishes order and regularity. Without it, our cosmos falls into disorder and chaos. And so what happens to a church that doesn't have gravitas? Right? If it's just a bunch of young guys looking around for some gravitas and there isn't any. 
older men, right, are circling, right? If you think of the son of righteousness at the center of the solar system of the Christian life, right? The son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, at the center of the solar system. Older men ought to be the planet that, is, that has enough gravitational pull that is pulling other things into the gravitational pull of the solar system. Saying, listen, this is the way of following Christ. This is the way of laying your life down. This is the way of running the race to the end. Here I am circling Christ at the center of my, cosmo, at the center of my solar system, my cosmos itself, and come with me in this journey. Come with me in this orbit. Come with me. And what older men do is pull younger men in. Now, listen, I was, I was converted at Mars Hill. And I went to I don't know how many different churches because I read, a Presbyter- I read an article on Wikipedia about Presbyterianism. I was like, I think I'm going to try that flavor of ice cream. And I went to this church, and I went to that church, and I went to that church. And then I walked into Christ's Covenant Church, and there is Covey and Dean folding bulletins. And they took an immediate and active interest in me such that I have never gone to another church since. Now, there, there, I get calls from young men who, who are interested in this church. And you know the first question that's popping up now? What are the old men like? Are they active in the community? Are there, like, I'm newly married. I don't have kids yet. But I, I, I'm not worried about my wife being fed. I'll feed her. I need to be fed. And, like, this is the question now, right? Why? And why is Jordan Peterson... Right? Why is Joe Rogan, there's this guy on, on YouTube, and he has this channel, and it's beautiful. And what he does is he teaches young men how to do the things because they didn't have fathers. He teaches them how to, how to grill. He teaches them how to clean the grill. He teaches them how to tie their tie. Their tie. He teaches them how to do things that the, these men don't know how to do. And he has millions of followers. Now, I, all of that is glorious. If you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, check him out. But I'm saying there is this void right now. There are, there are, a, there's a generation of young millennials who, who are looking for men to follow. They're looking for a gravitational pull. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, we have it. I'm, on, I'm like, listen, you come on down here and you will see what the Christian life is all about. Right? And I've got old examples of it. I've got middle-aged examples of it. And I've got young examples of it. And if you come here, you will find what you're looking for, which are men following Christ. It is the need. It, it, that is what it is all about with this generation, it is, finding, is pulling these young men into the orbit of Christ, teaching them that the most important thing they can do is get married and have kids and love, and love them with all their heart, mind, body, and soul, right, and serve them with everything they have, and, and bring a family into this orbit and c- attach it to other planets in the same orbit and create a community that's going to stand up to this dark and, and saltless world. And, and, and I'm going to say something a little harsh. It, it does not help when the sages don't think they're sages. The false humility, we have got to take false humility out to the back 40 and shoot it in the face. I'm tired of it. You have seen more than I have. You've seen more than the young men have. And it's time for you to say something about it. Because we are here against the culture of the world. And the culture of the world is full of millennials rolling their eyes and saying, okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. Okay, you guys asleep at the wheel who cause all these problems. And, and I see these, this thing flying around on the internet. I see articles about this. Well, the old men respond, well, it's you millennials who don't know how to work hard. It's you millennials who don't know how to do this. Don't, and the Gen Xers in the middle like me, I'm just like, what in the world is going on right now? We don't like either of you. <laughs> right? And, and it doesn't help to be in a church like this where, where, where an older couple can say to a younger couple, 
hey, if you ever need anything, if you ever need to know anything about now that you have a baby, if you need to know anything about how this works, let us know. And the younger couple say, uh, we're good. We, we won't be calling you. It's fine. We, we, we got a book on Amazon about how to raise kids. I mean, you guys laugh. That's what's happening. That's what happens. So what we need is some cross-generational pollination, right? What are we learning here from Titus? It's a multi-generational house-building project, and it doesn't help with the young kids rolling their eyes at the boomers and the old boomers just grumbling in the front about how the kids in the back are too loud. I'm going to take shots at everybody. We have sages in this church. I know it, right? I mean, Joel and Jared and I get to the point sometimes where we're like, we have no idea what to do. And we are not bereft of people to ask. And so we get out the phones, and we, the leaders of the church, are like, what ought we to do at this particular point with the, at this particular problem? And we listen to the advice that we get, and, and you know what? We're like, yeah, that's light in the darkness right there. That's wisdom. And I, and I, I mean, I have the, the proverb here, Proverb 20, 12, 15, and 25, 11, and 12, wisdom requires you're asking other people's opinions, right? And what we have are people who are like, no, I can figure this out all by myself. And if you don't think that you're infested with proto-American libertarianism, you're kidding yourself, young men. You're kidding yourself. You don't know yourself. You're not listening to yourself. I don't need you. I don't need your boomer ways. And I, I don't need all the cre. I don't need all that old stuff. I'm young. I will be able to figure it out. How, how come you didn't ask? How come you didn't give us a prayer request about your surgery that you have coming up? Well, you know, everyone seems really busy. I don't want to burden anyone. Yeah. Okay. So what you're telling me is you don't need people. You're, you're just you're a planet circling the sun all by yourself. And the older people are like, well, you know, I don't, nobody, likes, nobody likes to just get advice that they're not asked for. And you're like, yeah, I, 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 yeah it would be really nice because I know exactly who needs to hear this right now. And, and that person didn't ask for it. And I understand. You're not going to just walk up to somebody's house and be like, hi, I'm here from the sage stage, and I'm going I'm to tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> nobody wants to be that guy. And young men, you know what they don't want to be? You know what young men don't want to be? Men who ask for help. Men who ask for help. I, I remember when we were first married, I was, Anne Marie is like, okay, you're the leader. What do we do about this? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, call Liz Kirkman. She was a lady that used to go to the church, had a lot of kids. And Anne Marie would call her and get advice. And then I didn't know what to do, and she would say, well, how about you call Brian Kirkman? And I was like, no, 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 I'll figure it out. And I remember those days. I remember not needing to ask anyone questions because I knew everything. And, if, and even this, if you don't think I'm still in the sta- cage stage, you're kidding yourself a little bit, right? I have a lot of growing up to do in that regard. But we are a church uniquely equipped to, to be the kind of church the culture needs. And that is young people who are interested in Christ and old people who know him. And, 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 and old men, I understand what you've endured. I understand it's not gone the way you thought. Read Ecclesiastes, suck it up, and get in the fight. Because Ecclesiastes is written by an old man who screwed up a whole bunch and, and sat down and wrote about it. He's like, let me tell you all the ways I've screwed this up. And my, in and my, and the end of the day, the thing is still to do this. Follow Christ. Follow the Lord. And, I, and, and I've, done, I've gone to older guys, and there's been some who are like, uh, and I'm like, okay, fine. Don't tell me what you did right. Tell me all the things you did wrong, and I won't do those things. Like, even that's more helpful than nothing. 
And they tell me all the things they did wrong. And I go and I say, you know what? It's actually hard not to do those things. <laughs> I say, that guy actually knows something about how hard it is to live the Christian life with a family. We are uniquely equipped to be the kind of church this generation needs. There, it, it is a fatherless generation. It is a fatherless culture. It is a culture weak, full of lies. It's just like the Cretan culture. And what the, ho- what the house needs is a household code where there is hierarchy and there is equality and there is submission to Christ. And there are young people who are hungry for, for Christ and old people who know him. And, and, and what you have is the gen- multi-generational house building project that God intends. It's not something that we have to find. It's something that we are. And, and this is what it, so much of the Christian life, be who you are. Older people, be who you are. Younger people, you don't know nearly as much as you think, be who you are. People who don't know anything. <laughs> hey, and older people, you know a great deal. See, no, notice how I naturally turn to my left. <laughs> older people are predictable. <laughs> you know something. You know Jesus Christ. You know how hard this is. Okay? This is who we are. Let us embrace who we are. Let us rejoice in who we are. And let us get over ourselves. Universally, that's the thing right here. Old and young, get over yourself. Christ is the only way. And there are plenty of people here who are hungry for him and plenty of people here who know him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Father, we thank you so much for the venerable sages in our midst. We thank you, Lord, for the young and hungry hearts here. I pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would um, be more engaged in this multi-generational house-building project, that we would be humble, that we would be wise, that we would be sober-minded, that we would pursue you, Lord God, that um, the older men would uh, demonstrate their gravitas, that the younger men would grow in their gravitas, and that we as a church would pull um, many into the, into, the gravi- into the solar system of the Son of Righteousness, that we would pull them into the church, that we would pull them near to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen.